Hello, you're listening to Armchair Analysts with me, Rupert Meadows, and Cameron McDonald. This week, we're talking international tournaments. There's having a greatness thrust upon you, and then there's that. The Bundesliga. To get beaten by a team who's never won the competition, breaking their 10-year winning streak because they signed two Spurs players. And the introduction of blue cards. Do you even think yellow and red cards should exist because they didn't at the start of the game? Let's talk about the foosball. Where best to start? Should we start with uh, blue cards? Because blue cards, I mean, there's been lots of uh, exciting stuff happening across the tournaments, across the uh, Premier League, outside of the Premier League. I know there's one we want to talk about, um, but maybe blue cards are the best place to start because it's sort of a, a, a macro issue. It's sort of across all the football rather than in any one league or tournament. Yeah, absolutely. So the the latest is that blue cards are set to be trialled at the top level of football. Um, for some, that's come as a bit of a surprise. For others, it's been rumbling around since, for probably I want to say about the last five years or so, being trialled at different lower tier leagues um, further down the step system. Just before you go into the details of how that, why don't you take, what is a blue, like we know yellow, ah, what's a blue yeah, card? Yeah, of course. What is a blue card? Um, so blue cards are to give people sin bins. So similar to how rugby, a yellow card gives a player a sin bin, Blue cards will now sin bin a player for 10 minutes in the technical area. Yeah, and so the idea is that this is sort of, we often call this an orange card, and they won't have made it an orange card for obvious reasons. It's sort of too confusing. But I guess the idea for these is they sort of fill that role between a yellow and a red card. So when a foul is harsher than just a caution, but maybe not so so harsh as to sort of merit sending a player off entirely and changing the face of the game, this is sort of the, the intermediary step, taking a player off for 10 minutes of the game. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, I, I've definitely played in um, football matches where kind of a sin bin system has existed. And typically when you go lower down the uh, the football pyramid, um, as far down, if you will, as, as where I play, um, it, it tends to work quite well, uh, as far as I can tell, because it's generally given for quite harsh challenges, generally given for players who lost their head a little bit, need to cool off. And invariably, I found that people tend to cool off when they when they get 10 minutes on the sidelines. Yeah, I think one of the funny things that, you know, certainly we've seen at the level we start to play is sometimes you'll have um, the rare occasion where someone gets sin binned and they don't cool off and they come back on and they immediately get sin binned again and the rest of their team is like, mate. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's also because um, it, it can become a bit of a game where it's like, can I get this guy pissed off again? Because <laughs> it will invariably benefit my team if they are down a player. Um, I actually played a game of six side yesterday and someone fouled me, sliced through me from behind and got Simbin for it. Um, he then came up to me and apologised um, after he'd been taken off. Oh, there you go. That's one instance of it working. Um, yeah, the Football Association are considering... That's it. So, so it works, always. <laughs> trialing it. Confirmed. They're considering trialing it in the, the FA Cup and the Women's FA Cup next season. It's an interesting one, this, because... You know, as we've discussed, we've seen sin bins in action, uh, although admittedly not at the highest level of the game, uh, quite a few steps away from that. And I sort of wanted to ask you what your, like, do you think this is a broadly good idea? Do you think this is a broadly bad idea? Where do you stand on the idea of blue cards coming into the sort of the elite game? I think, um, I think it adds a new level of complexity that I, I don't hate. Um, I think it is interesting. Um, I've definitely seen some stuff about the fact that it'll make cynical fouls more interesting. So, for example, um, if someone does a tactical foul 
to kind of stop a counterattack and probably would have received a yellow card for it. Might have received a red, but wouldn't quite. This In this way, it will not necessarily discourage that, but it will change the dynamic around whether or not you want to try and, and risk it to pick up a, a yellow or potentially like a, an orange card, like a close to a red card, but not quite. Um, it just It just changes the goalposts because having a player off for 10 minutes will have a big impact, not just for that 10 minutes, but also if, if for 10 minutes, every player on the pitch has to work that bit harder, even when that player comes back, they're still more tired and will be more um, likely to, I think, lose the game. So I, I think um, I'm broadly pro this. I think we obviously need to see how it will work. I think in terms of... Um, whether or not I think referees are ready for more complexity or less complexity, probably I would lean towards less. So in that sense, it's another whole aspect of the of the kind of the officiating process that that needs to be mastered quickly. Um, but I think the fact that it's been trialed for so long and has slowly worked its way up is is a good indicator of the fact that it seems to be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there that you sort of covered that I want to pick up on. I mean, one of the things I hadn't really thought until you kind of touched on it there is, you know, in terms of players working a bit harder and things like that, what's different between a blue card and in some ways how a blue card can be more difficult than a red card is, you know how sometimes a team will have like a centre-back sent off and so they will sub off the striker for another centre-back so they've got sort of still the back four and maybe they sacrifice their goal score. Like in in a situation where your centre-back commits a cynical foul and gets blue carded, you probably don't bring off the striker to bring on another centre-back because then you would be sort of over indexing on defence. So you would be in a situation there where you would have three defenders and you would have to have a midfielder drop back or a winger drop back and then maybe they're a little bit more uncomfortable. So it has a different effect on the tactics of a team. Taking a player off temporarily Mm. in some cases could actually be worse than taking them off permanently. Um, I I think, yeah, the the thing I like about it, firstly, the thing I like about it is that I'm always up for trialling new rules to do with football. I know that there are some people who are really traditionalist and think that it should always be played the way that they grew up loving it. But the game is changing. The players are changing. The technology is changing. The the, the way that the, the tactics are changing. I think the game needs to change along with it. So I, I don't hate that there's sort of new things being trialled personally, and I, I respect the the right of people to to think that that's all nonsense. But I do like it for you know specifically those those situations we see where a player probably should be sent off, but we see the ref sort of in real time go, mm, "This will affect the game too much," which is always something that when you're on the receiving end of it as a sort of a fan of that player or that that club that player's club you're like oh thank god we've escaped there and when you're playing against a team like that you're like well they've just not been sent off because it's the 30th minute and the ref thinks it'll change the game too too massively so i think it's really good there i, I do also agree much with you know for me it's really com- comparable to var on paper this is a brilliant idea on paper finding a new more bespoke way to punish dissent and cynical fouls is brilliant in practice, giving referees more tools when they're already struggling still with the one new tool they've been given in VAR is bound to cause <laughs> a lot of problems, at least in the short term. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I think um, while while I hear you when you say you don't begrudge people who are resistant to change, I also think, you know, at what point are you going to become a traditionalist then? Do you think that goalkeepers should still be allowed to to carry the ball in their hands up to the halfway point? which was the rule until like 1910. Like, do you even think yellow and red cards should exist? Because they didn't at the start of the game. 
Like, I think <laughs> games naturally evolve and we have to accept that they will hopefully continue to shape and define and improve the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is the sort of inherent flaw in when you're talking about a game as old as football of being a traditionalist, because you will see people talking about the blue cards, which weirdly, at least to my mind, and sort of what I've seen has had a pretty negative response so far. But people will be going, oh, why are they changing the game so much? And they're not thinking about, as you say, changing the original game of football. They think about the game in whatever state it was <laughs> when they were 10 years old. So Listen, you know, they're not Cam, thinking, like, I remember bring back when it was WM the whole formation. town that got to play football. I remember when it was the whole town. <laughs> running around kicking the ball everyone chasing them those are the good old days let's bring that back not all this newfangled stuff like goalposts and, and nets but but like that's it like for our generation versus our parents generation versus our grandparents generation if all three of those people say i wish football was played like it wasn't the good old day you're effectively describing three different games <laughs> yeah in some ways absolutely i mean um definitely not just about rule changes but about tactics um, you know, the the game that, that was played in the 50s, the game that was played in the 30s, was completely different to, to what it is now. And if you go back and watch um, some some game footage, even from like the 70s, there are times where, I don't know if you've seen that, um, that clip of Diego Maradona playing in Serie A, and the, there was one team that I think Napoli played against that they did this thing where every single player like ran up to the halfway line to catch everyone offside. And Diego Maradona then combated it by like making a run from deep and literally just had the whole half free to run through and score. Like it's a completely ever-changing game. And yeah, I, I think um I think it's correct that rules change with it. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think this is probably the best way to do it, trialling it in something like the FA Cup. And hopefully, if it goes well, they implement it. If it goes horrendously wrong and there's more issues than there are solutions, um, then they will scrap it. But yeah, on paper, for me, I, I was kind of broadly a fan of this idea. And I think generally the response from global football fandom has been pretty negative. Um, but I think, you know, hey, people hate change. That's true. And and I do I do think that the strongest opposition to it is the argument of referees, you know, the actual practical implementation of these rules. We can sit around and say we think it's a good idea, but we also thought VAR was a good idea and it's not exactly gone our way as fans, as as, as the world of football, I think we can safely say. I think we safely can. Um, well, look, that's blue cards uh, for, for now. I'm sure we'll be able to touch base a little bit later. And when we've seen the first blue card, uh, and certainly the first controversial blue card come out, uh, we'll have a little bit more to say. Uh, where shall we head next? Shall we head over to the Asian continent where Qatar have won the whole thing in their, their host country? Actually, interestingly, both of the sort of two, uh, the AFCON and the Asian Cup, won by the host nations, which uh, you know says a fair bit about home field advantage. Yeah, it, it's a good point. And I'd be really interested, now that you've just said that, it's got my mind spinning, I'd be really interested to see how much of a difference home advantage has had over the years. My instinct is that the more things have become um, regimented and the more kind of rules and regulations there are about the pitch quality and things like that, it's probably it's probably gone a lot more... Um, kind of down like down the middle in terms of how much uh, of an impact home advantage actually has but yeah this is a this is a good example of of a, a time where that has not been the case and i feel like there are 
probably a couple of good examples through recent years where um, home nations have won the whole tournament. Um, but needless to say, um, Qatar have won it. The, 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 um, the, the big one, the, the big one obviously is just that obviously this isn't the host nation so much the host region, but like in the World Cup, there's never been a winner from a non-South American. Like it's, when it's hosted in South America, it's always a South American team that wins it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, South America is a good a good example because you just the the regional climate is is quite specific. Oftentimes the the pitches are quite high up altitude wise. Um, that could be really hard to adapt to. Um, so yeah, good example. Um, Qatar have one. Um, let's talk about the game first. It was three one. Uh, Qatar got the first goal and then Jordan equalised and then Qatar ran away with two more goals. Um, three penalties for Qatar, which I think raised some eyebrows across the international community. What was your take on how the game played out? Do you think that, on balance, Qatar deserved to win it? Do you think um, Jordan were unlucky to not maybe get more from the game? I think Qatar did deserve to win it. I think when you have something like three penalties, people always immediately go, oh, there must be something suspect going on there. They were all pretty clear penalties to my mind. Uh, I don't know if you disagree. Uh, but I think that's just the nature of people. Uh, I would go, say oh, at, least, at least one of them maybe uh, stood out. But then I was also looking for um, any sort of notion of, of like non-fair play. Um, I feel like the second or the third penalty looked pretty... Um, pretty soft, in my opinion. Maybe a little bit soft, but not like I think. I think what a lot of people who sort of saw this result and formed an opinion were sort of thinking was like, ah, oh, clearly these are all absolute non-penalties. Like three of them can, you know, all three of them can get given. It is probably the only time that's ever happened uh, that I can think of. Where it's like three penalties in a major final, same player scores all three hat-trick of penalties. Quite. Uh, Quite, quite an interesting thing to stand out. What I think is the most interesting thing about this final, and you know, we can go back to how the game was played, but just the finalists. It's really interesting. We talked a few times about it in the lead up to this game and sort of talked about people like Iran. Qatar didn't pick up a single point in the World Cup, and yet they're nominally the best team in Asia a, a year and a half later? Question mark, question mark. And, and you'd think of, you know, if you look from the outside in, which is very much the position I'm coming from, uh, sort of towards Asian football, you think about the heavyweights and you think very much your South Koreas, your Japans, maybe in Iran because they're historically, you know, very good in, in the Asian tournaments, even though they're not so much in the World Cup. So the fact that you ended up with a final of Qatar and Jordan is, you know, it certainly shows there's been a real power shift in, in the way that these things happen. And maybe also that the, Asia, uh, that the Asian Cup is kind of has some of the magic that AFCON has that people always ascribe to AFCON, but maybe should also be ascribing to the Asian Cup as well in terms of like, there are some real underdog stories here. Yeah, well, so so not to completely undercut um, what you've just said, but um, I believe Qatar were the champions, the reigning champions going into this tournament. Um, I think they won the 2019 Asia Cup as well. So um, this is the second time on the bounce that they've managed to come away with it. It is only their second it's, title it's, ever. It's- well, that's that, that's the thing. It is their second, but they'd never won it before those two, and so they've sort of flanked a terrible performance at the World Cup, in which they're also hosts either side by championship runs in the Asian Cup. Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's an interesting dynamic shift. I, I think definitely they wouldn't be the the first team ever to to get, um, I guess, thrown by the the world stage. Uh, you know. 
competing in the World Cup is so dramatically much bigger than any other tournament in the world, I would say, by quite a long way, in terms of viewership numbers, in terms of profile, status, etc., and also competitiveness. Um, Qatar definitely aren't the first nation who do very well within their continent, within their region, um, but then go on to struggle in World Cup format and tournaments. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, it's definitely surprising because, as you say there, we probably spend less time thinking about the Asia Cups than we do about things like the World Cups. And in my mind, at least, Qatar are a, a mid to, to average side, mid to poor. Um, and there are these other teams that definitely I grew up thinking how they had a, a bigger profile, um, teams like South Korea and, and Japan um, and, and things like that. And, and also Iran. Um, I think we were all quite impressed by Iran at times, probably in the, the most recent World Cup. Um, they've also got a few players across Europe that we recognise. Um, but I think Qatar deserves some credit. I think probably the odd one out there is the World Cup performance because they are improving as a nation. I'm not sure where they are now on the um, you know, the, the FIFA rankings, but presumably they'll be probably top 30. Qatar? Uh, I, don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I would imagine not. Let's have. Why don't we have a little look? They are ranked. Let's see what their FIFA rank is. Fifty-eight. The highest 58. is forty-two. So you know, it's it's not as low as I thought it was. There you go. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a little surprised at that, given that they've just won the Asia Cup and not for the first time. But um, then again, you take the World Cup. Uh, performance into consideration um that probably feels about right um yeah I, I do agree with you broadly that they were good for this win uh, i think jordan had a lot of chances uh, i think they they probably had the they have the lion's share of chances um definitely kept a competitive so, so. state in the game but um yeah qatar managed to penetrate through the lines a few too many times and jordan didn't have the i guess we would say the um professionalism at the back to to not give away several penalties yeah they, they most certainly didn't well look that's um that's the asian cup i mean quite an interesting run there with with a lot of uh, a lot of exciting teams um let's talk about the other conclusion of an international tournament that came on sunday that being the african cup of nations which had uh, quite a final in and of itself a much tighter final um i believe the ivory coast were uh, sorry Nigeria were 1-0 up until, was it the 80th minute or so? And then ended up losing 2-1 to the Ivory Coast. I think it might even have been later than the 80th minute, but don't quote me on that. Um, yeah, it, it felt like it was going to be one of those days for um, Ivory no, Coast. It was, who... it, was, it, was, it was the 62nd that Kessie scored and then 80. I don't know why it felt later. I was just going off uh, off what it felt. It felt like a really late comment, maybe just because Ivory Coast didn't see much of the game until that point. Yeah, do you know what? I think there was a real like hammering against Much the door for the last like half an hour where Ivory Coast were really going for it. And I think maybe that put it in our minds the idea that they were really chasing the game, but what they were doing was really chasing the win. Um, and uh, I think this is probably another good example of, of a team that really deserved to win it. Um, Ivory Coast had a fantastic game. They probably went down against the run of play. And then the second half was just... It was, it was 
very one-sided and quite a, quite, a, quite an exciting game actually to to watch um in spells um it was an exciting and... game at time i mean nigeria desperately were trying to <laughs> kill the game even from nil they were yeah. like this is going to be a a nil nil win for us and then they want one up and they were like okay now it's really really time to which is I understand that you're sort of essentially playing away in that final, but probably not the way you should play in a final of, of a massive tournament because of exactly this reason. Well, also because the quality of Nigeria is like probably, they're probably a top heavy side, even if um, their centre-back captain Akong is like, I think he picked up the best best player of the tournament award and was fantastic. I think they definitely have a real strength and attack that they didn't really seem to be interested in trying to get the most out of. Definitely thought it was quite an interesting managerial decision to set them up in the way that they did, playing very defensive, um, just trying to stifle Ivory Coast, but also not doing that particularly well. Ivory Coast continued to um, put chances on net. Um, Seb Haller, I think, on a different day, maybe could have had three or four goals. Um, chances are being created all the time. And I think, yeah, I think it, it felt like it was going to be one of those days and then they managed to to put it through at the very end. And what a finish from Seb Haller to go two one up. Oh, absolutely sumptuous finish, and you know, real narrative FC moment there. Obviously, with with Halle coming back from his battle with cancer, and really sort of heartwarming moment for anyone who is not. Uh, I was chatting to a, a mate at work today, actually, who is Nigerian, and I was like, "God, so heartwarming." He was like, "No, it wasn't." <laughs> so, for who wasn't supporting Nigeria, real heartwarming, uh, great moment in football, uh, and yeah, I mean, fantastic finish in and of itself. But yeah, I just thought. Nigeria, especially when they'd beaten Ivory Coast earlier in the tournament, they were probably the stronger team on paper. To set up that way, not great. And and they just allowed players like Simon Adingra just had the run of that game. He was given so much time to just operate on the wing and not everything came off, but obviously, yeah, obviously he got two assists, so enough did come off. But he had so many different opportunities <laughs> to run and run down that flank and sort of look for investigative passes and good crosses. And you can't let someone do that for 90 minutes because eventually they will get two assists. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think um, probably the busiest man on the pitch was like Ola Aina. <laughs> Um I think uh, he was asked to, to do a lot throughout the game. And I don't think he had a terrible game, but yeah, they just overloaded on, on the wings and were able to find a lot of purchase, create a lot of chances. And eventually they paid off. Eventually they did. I, I did see something today that's quite funny. So Nigeria's coach, um, well, the funny stories on both teams with the coach. Obviously, um, Cote d'Ivoire sacked their well, coach Coast, yeah. after the group stages um, and, and sort of sacked their coach and they had the assistant coach basically take them to the final and win it. So that guy, I mean, there's having uh, greatness thrust upon you and then there's that. What a what a CV uh, he's now got where you can say he's won AFCON, sort of having come in expecting to, to be the number two. And then the, um, oh, yeah, the Nigerian... The making of a legend. Yeah, I mean, good God. And then the Nigeria coach is sort of, we talk about how Nigeria played quite negatively and sort of looked to preserve the 1-0. I saw something today. Do you know which, okay, which famous other football manager is really good friends with this manager? They went to their first sort of day of coaching school together. They sort of, just pick a name that's that's really good friends with this guy. (laughs) Just pick a name. Yeah, which, um, which which other famous manager is best friends with the manager of Nigeria based on, you know, the, the fact that he's sort of set up with a really negative trying to grind out the 1-0. Jose Mourinho. Game. It is Jose Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> 
I saw That's a video so of Jose Mourinho being like, "Yeah, we we started on coaching the first day together. He's like my best friend in football. Like we still talk all the time." And I was like, "Yep, we can tell, Jose. We can tell that you guys know each other." <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately for Nigeria, he was not Jose, and yeah, the the defensive stifling tactics didn't win. I think while Jose Mourinho obviously is super defensive, he also sets his team up to be able to hit really hard on the counter and kind of allow the creative players, the more attacking minded players to have some purchase on the game. And that was what was really lacking in this. I think Nigeria didn't necessarily have a bad defensive performance. It was just that all they were doing was defending. And at some point that wall was going to get broken down. Yeah, it's true. Well, Jose Pacero is basically Jose Mourinho from Wish, uh, I think is how we can sum up that final. Um, <laughs> let's That's go so back to... <laughs> let's go back to some domestic football let's start off not in the uh, warm and familiar climes of the Premier League but instead the exciting new and fresh uh, situation that's happening in the Bundesliga now we have been talking uh, every now and again touching in with uh, Xabi Alonso and our friends at Bayer Leverkusen who are having uh, a great old season but this weekend they actually beat Bayern Munich 3-0 which sort of widened their, their reach and sort of had a bit of a statement moment in terms of, you know, we're not going to let you sort of take back head. We are the big boys now. And it was a really dominant display. It had everything, really. It had amazing goals uh, from Alex Grimaldo and Jerry Fringpong, who are the sort of the free-scoring, uh, goal-scoring, full-backs partnership that's been, you know, setting the league alight. Um, it had sort of a great moment where Manuel Neuer came up for a corner and got punished for it. It had Thomas Muller in some sort of, like, unbelievable rant that reminded me a bit of Charlie Austin just absolutely losing it, although he was doing it in German. So I can only imagine he was actually speaking quite softly and that's such a <laughs> sort of harshness of the language um unlucky guys good brilliant. try well done everyone brilliant brilliant game um what um, did concern me obviously i loving the underdog i did want leverkusen to witness what i hated about this game was watching harry kane it was all the worst bits of harry kane who we know is an excellent player but boy oh boy when it's time for a big game does he turn into a bad player <laughs> he did turn into a bit of a puddle um i think uh while, you know, his his individual performance aside, um, you need to give credit to the way that Chabi Alonso set up his team tactically to um, kind of try and nullify Bayern's attack. And it, it was clearly incredibly effective. Um, and I think um, probably what Chabi Alonso realised was that there's no real kind of metronome in Bayern's midfield that can't be stopped. And I think he put Nathan Teller and Florian Wirtz kind of um, slightly deeper, um, kind of marking the, the midfield pivot, which allowed Granit Xhaka and Andrich to sit deeper again, which cut off that space that, um, you know, those, those attacking players, people like Harry Kane as well, that like to drop in, um, like to operate in. And, and that just seemed to, to completely stop any sort of um, attacking drive from Bayern Munich they only managed one shot on target all game to buy Leverkusen's eight and you know this game could have been more than 3-0 there were quite a few times where Bayer Leverkusen broke through Bayern's high line I mean personally I don't know why you're trying to play a high line with Eric Dyer at your central centre-back um, and they just cut them apart I think you're right it was a real sit down little bro moment 
It, it really was. And there were some amazing stats on, on either side. I mean, Harry Kane having seven touches the whole match really sort of spoke to, to his effectiveness. Um, I think the, the sort of the fullback partnership, as I mentioned there, Alex Grimaldo, who was signed on a free, by the way, from Benfica, which doesn't really happen that, that often these days that you sign someone on a free and they come in uh, massively. He's got 10 goals and 11 assists from uh, left back. Jeremy Fringpong has got eight goals and 10 assists uh, from right back. Obviously, you've talked about Granit Xhaka there as well, who's who's come in at, at a relatively cheap price. Victor Boniface, who's who's a relatively new uh, import as well. This team, and not just in this match, but across the season, has been assembled at not much cost. And there are so many young, promising stars who are stamping their mark on maybe not just the Bundesliga, but the world's game. And, and something like this result really shows that. Uh, absolutely, and um, I mean, yeah, don't get it twisted. This is a this is a three nil dominant win. And you, they didn't even have their their star striker Victor Boniface, who was out with injury. No, he, no, um, he didn't, didn't start, did he? No, well, he he's he's got a groin injury at the moment, um, so I think he's I think he's coming back soon. But um, no, he, he was he was completely out. So it really does put in stark contrast how impressive Bayer Leverkusen have been, and I think everyone's kind of been, I guess, keeping a gentle eye on the um, the Bundesliga and thinking, could they do it? Are they going to do it? And look, let's be real. We've been burned many times before when we thought that some other team was going to beat Bayern Munich to the title and then Bayern Munich turn around. They basically are the, they do the Man City equivalent where they go, okay, I guess now we'll just stop losing games. Um, And I'm sold. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to to believe again. I'm ready to, to think of this as... A, a new, different challenge. And and for me, it has to be because Bayer Leverkusen continue to be unbeaten. I mean, that is just silly. It's 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 silly. And they've been so consistent since Xavi Alonso took over. When he took over, um, I think about a year and a half ago, Bayer Leverkusen were in the relegation zone. They finished last season in sixth place. So they were an incredibly effective team last season for, for the kind of the latter half of it. And then now they've just gone from strength to strength to strength. And it looks like Bayern Munich can get run right to the end. And I, for one, couldn't be happier because I think it's hilarious if Harry Kane doesn't win the Bundesliga. Well, it is it is tempting fate a little bit, isn't it? Like, you sign Harry Kane, who is the immovable object thing. Like, you sign Harry Kane, who... <laughs> always sort of like fumbles his chance to win a trophy. Then you sort of like double up and you sign Eric Dyer as well. You can't sign two Spurs players and expect like that would be the funniest thing in football law. It's a team that's won like ten leagues in a row. <laughs> they sign two Spurs players, they don't win it. And like Bayer Leverkusen, it's worth mentioning, have never won the Bundesliga. <laughs> so they get beaten by a team who's never won the competition, breaking their ten year winning streak because they signed two Spurs players. Don't do it, guys. Stay safe. <laughs> Is that true? Bayer Leverkusen never won the Bundesliga. Never won it. Wow, it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel like you you have me think of Bayer Leverkusen as like a historic team. They had um, you know fantastic players in the past, like Michael Ballack. Um, but fair enough. There you go. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a great one. Uh, before we sort of move uh, into a bit of useless trivia and back to the uh, the safe, welcoming shores of the UK, I just wanted to stay in Germany for a second to talk a little bit about uh, well, something that's happening in the Bundesliga Zwei. Uh, you mentioned there, sort of, you think of Leverkusen as an old, uh, great historic club. There's another club that currently find themselves in the Bundesliga Zwei in the form of Schalke, who are currently flirting uh, around the relegation spots. Currently, uh, 17th and 16th are both on 21 points. Schalke find themselves two points 
just clear. The reason that this is a problem for Schalke beyond the sort of initial devastation of going down a league is that due to the way that the league registration system works in Germany, because of Schalke's massive debts, they won't be able to achieve a football license to play in the uh, Bundesliga Drei. Have I got my German right there? Um, if they are relegated, Spy. and in an, in, a, in effect, will have to start again as a uh, as a non-league club. They have to start off from the amateur level if they get relegated this season. Yeah, which, um, well, it'll be a really sad thing to see um, Schalke, uh, such a, a big historic club, and it's been it's been a sad thing to watch them slowly slip down further and further, and, and Germany are no strangers to that happening. Um, probably the best example of Hamburg, um, who continue to struggle to get promoted again back into the Bundesliga, but... This will be, I think, as far as I know, a new a new low for German football in terms of, you know, anyone anyone can can lose this license. Anyone can can be forced to start again. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Well, let's uh let's move into Vidius's trivia to uh to brighten up the mood after we think about the potential misery occurring over for Schalke. Um I've got a an extremely topical one uh for you Rupert. Uh we are both mm. recording here on Tuesday the 13th of February, uh, the day before Lent and Shrove or Pancake Tuesday as it's sometimes known uh to people here in this country. What if I told you Rupert that Darren Peacock who played for Newcastle, is the only player whose name contains every letter in the word pancake to make a Premier League appearance on Shrove Tuesday, which he did for the Magpies in 1995. <laughs> Darren Peacock scored a goal on Shrove Tuesday in 1995. No, no, he just made an appearance, but he's the only player with a name that has all the letters in the word pancake to do so on Shrove Tuesday. So if he scored a goal, it would have been better. He's yet to even be matched on making an appearance. Wow, that is. I mean, it's it's perfect. It might be the the perfect one. Um, there you go. I've got um, I've got quite a funny piece of trivia for you, which is just a very simple stat um, that I saw and was surprised by, and I thought I'd share with you and the listeners. Which is that? Did you know that Sergio Aguero has more career successful dribbles than Cristiano Ronaldo? Really, that's that's quite surprising. Yeah, there you go. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo has 816 dribbles over the course of his career. Sergio Aguero, 832. Um, if you would like to know, they are, they're the, they're the fourth and fifth um, for most completed dribbles in the history of football, um, or at least in, since we started properly recording those statistics because all of these players are modern players. Um, in third place is Franck Ribéry with 932. Um, in second place... Eden Hazard with, uh, I think it's 1,200, and Messi way out in front with 1,881 dribbles. Fucking hell. That's uh, uh, what, what a guy. I mean, yeah, as, as you say, there's the whole sort of um, since stats started getting recorded, which probably precludes sure. quite a few of the the notable. But yeah, I mean, that so, that list more or less. Aguero is probably the only one that doesn't make sense in that list. The other ones you think of as like, I mean, they're all they've all spent a lot of time on the wing, which is where you do most of your dribbling. Aguero played primarily through the middle. Who was he? <laughs> how much dribbling was he doing past centre backs? <laughs> well, I think when you think about I his guess. position uh, for City. He he did often like to 
pick up the ball from deep. He, he never operated as like a false nine or anything, but, you know, playing in Pep Guardiola's system and, and the systems that came before it with Mancini and Pellegrini and people like that, I think that City have often played with, they've, they've had traditional strikers like Ed and Dzeko, um, but what made Sergio Aguero was so good was that he was able to pick up the ball deep and drive past players and bring wingers into the game. Um, and that led to a team which had, which was able to not only have a really prolific striker, but also really prolific wingers and, and kind of, I guess, gave gave way to what we now think of as Man City, which was an incredibly goals for fun scoring team. Um, but yeah, you're right. Sergio Aguero definitely surprised me. That's that's why I, I thought I would lead with that one uh, and then drop the, the rest of the background statistics afterwards because I personally was quite surprised to see it in stark contrast to Cristiano Ronaldo, who... I think we all think of still as a bit of a dribbly boy, even if he hasn't played on the wing for, for several years. Um, but yeah, there you go. That's, that's a great stat. But that, the, that's the reason it's a great stat, because it's like, you're right, Sergio Aguero, he wasn't a traditional target man. He was like very good at getting the ball past players. He was good with the ball. To, like he, he was a good dribbler, but such a good and frequent dribbler that he dribbled the ball more than Ronaldo and also every other winger in world football less three is kind of crazy. <laughs> It's it's absolutely crazy. Um, I think, I mean, the other part that I thought was crazy was that Messi has more than double Ronaldo's dribbling statistics um, and like 50% more than the second place. <laughs> Hazard has like 1,200, Messi has 1,800. Yeah, I mean, that that one is, it's an unreal stat. It's not, I mean, you look, if you watch... It's not surprising like, though, because Messi is Messi's unreal top 10 goals like four of them are him dribbling past six players so easy enough for fun and those are just the ones that actually went in oh yeah yeah no exactly I mean it's not that one's not the surprising one um and probably not therefore as useless as uh Aguero being more dribbly than Ronaldo Brilliant. Well, look, I, I love it. Uh, great way to sign off Yusuf's trivia. Let's go into the Premier League because we are another interesting junction in the Premier League. We're about to have a lot of sort of uh, double ups, people catching up on games. Obviously, City still have a game in hand. Uh, Liverpool are going to play two in the space that asked to play one. City are going to play two in the space that asked to play one. There's then sort of a, a blank week where some teams aren't playing. So there's a lot of sort of shake up about to, about to happen. This week was interesting in that sort of all the there wasn't really much ground made in terms of the title race. All of those three teams won. Um, Man City uh, saw the return of Erling Haaland, which was uh, quite a big league narrative. Um, other than that, though, their win over Everton was not sort of I suppose shocking. The the only sort of shocking thing that I sort of had in this game. Um, Ben Godfrey, I don't understand how, didn't get like, we were talking about how the blue card is a nice middle ground between a yellow and a red. What is the, the after a red card? Because <laughs> maybe they need one. Do you see this? Ben Godfrey, like, <laughs> kicking Edison in the face. Yeah, it's, and again, like, what is what is VAR doing if not there to catch things like this? Yeah, and look, I've made no bones about the fact that I have no real love lost for City's massive dominance in the league, but I still think the rules should be applied. This is a crazy, crazy thing to to not be punished in the slightest. Um, so I'm not sure how they've missed not one, but two red card challenges in quick succession. Honestly, it, yeah, it's it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that happens that really does make you question to the foundations the like the refereeing process. Um, if it wasn't already incredibly under scrutiny it really was um 
Obviously, as I mentioned, sort of Erling Haaland coming back and for his second goal, he absolutely ragged old Jared Branthwaite in a, in a really unkind way, to be honest. But Jared Branthwaite, other than that, in this game, really got his flowers. Everyone was sort of going, hey, this kid uh, is going to be on to bigger things soon, which is always sort of interesting to see. And probably... I was going to say not good news for Everton, but probably in the situation they are in now, they're like, someone, a sellable asset? Yes, please. Um, so he's definitely one to keep <laughs> an eye on um, and sort of finding more and more time in, in the team now. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think he's a very exciting player. And I think there are a couple of, of quite exciting players that are coming through that maybe we should do a a video about. I think... Um, Brighton have some some interesting players coming through as well, including even some homegrown talent. Um, and yeah, I think uh, maybe some sort of wider discussion around the emerging talents in the England football setup might might make for um, a, a good conversation. But yeah, um, I, I think uh, Everton always seem to have players roll through, and, and some of them make it. Um, some of them maybe less so. I'm thinking of someone like Tom Davies. Um, but yeah, it's uh, they always tend to churn out a couple every few years. That they do. Tom Davies is now uh, sporting a sort of a mohawk over at Sheffield United, which uh, <laughs> has made him look uh, it's made him look like a more imposing footballer than when he had the big mop. Um, <laughs> That's true. And, and look, at- maybe harsh of me to say he hasn't made it when he, when he remains a Premier League footballer. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I myself was quite excited about the, the like the, the combative eighteen-year-old midfielder that, that Everton suddenly had, um, who never quite manifested into a world-class talent. I think that's fair. Um, the next game we have the highest-scoring game of the weekend: West Ham nil, Arsenal six. Um, Arsenal are actually maybe starting to this. This is sort of like the inverse of what happened last season, where they were flying for ages and they started to peter out towards the end. They've since they sort of had their their break over in Dubai, have picked up quite a few big results. And I think they've scored something like seventeen goals in their last three or four games, or, or something like that. But six nil here, really, really impressive, and lots of different kinds of goals. And again, six maybe belying how many goals they could have scored. I thought West Ham were absolutely blown away in the first half, and were it not for Arsenal's trademark of not being able to finish their chances it honestly could have been 7-0 up in the first half oh yeah it, it was um about as one-sided as it gets and quite surprising in that regard in that you know this was a a West Ham team playing at home yes they've they've not been on the best run of form but they haven't been conceding many goals since probably a, a month or two ago when they played Liverpool I want to say and had quite a few put past them um yeah, I <laughs> I mean, it's funny you talk about how Arsenal are, are turning things around and they have, as you say, 17 goals in the last four games. Um, there you go. I don't know if I would agree in the sense that I think probably their second half of the season was a little bit worse than the first half of this season. Um, I think they are at the top of the table by nature of the fact that no one has really stood up to be counted and decided to to be head and shoulders above everyone else in the league. I don't think Liverpool have really, you know, pushed hard and become like very consistent. City definitely haven't become very, top, very top, consistent. Top of the yet. top of the form table, or Arsenal probably are top of the form table. I think you have to give it to them, given that yeah. I mean, if you put six past a team at home. And you just look so strong doing it. Um, 
I mean, you know, you put past put six past a team which is at home. Um, yeah, I think um, they seem to be picking up form in exactly the right time of year. Um, I think that if, you know, we talked last week about whether or not they're still title challengers. And I think that, to my mind at least, the that situation has changed. I think, I think yes, they do seem to be title challengers, very much so. I think it's very much looking like a three-horse race. And I think the, what's interesting about this result, and we'll we'll wait to see how things shape out, but February typically is the month where things start to go wrong for Arsenal. It happened last season. You know, West Ham were one of the teams who did this. But, like, typically this is where Arsenal, even when they've been set to challenge it for top four or, or whatever it might be, sort of start, the wheels start to come off in February. So to have this run of the last few games uh, and a result like this, maybe it's a sign that things are changing. Uh, I think you look at this team going into the game and West Ham have had the better of Arsenal on two different occasions this season in the league and obviously in the FA Cup as well you looked at the the sort of Arsenal team announcement when this game started and and some of the players on the bench I mean you had players like Rule Walters, Mauro Bandera, Ethan Nwaneri, Reese Nelson like these are not top level Premier League players they had six different players out uh, in terms of Smith Rowe, Zinchenko, Fabio Vieira, Gabriel Jesus, Yuri Timber, Thomas Partey this is typically the kind of game yeah. where West Ham win 2-0 the wheels come off for Arsenal and the title dream dies but instead they've come and they've won 6-0 away do I think they're going to win the title if you had to put a gun to my head right now? No, but I think that this is a good change from where they've been, even pre-Arteta, the fact that they can put a performance like this with the lack of sort of resources they, they had in terms of injuries. So maybe it's trending upwards. I think it was interesting as well. We think about Arsenal this season versus last season, and I think a lot of people have gone, they're nowhere near the same level. And certainly it's true that they have five points less now than they did last season. They've actually scored more goals and conceded less goals. So at least in terms of those raw stats that you can control, you can never really, can, you, know, that, you know, there's always going to be a freak goal here and there. But over sort of the, the macro trend, they've actually done the bit they're supposed to do more and the bit they're not supposed to do less. I mean, it all sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I hope so. It sounded good in my head. I don't know if that came out in any sort of sense, but it sounds <laughs> well, like you understand what uh, I'm saying. I think I'm there. I think I'm there with you. Um, what's funny is that sometimes, you know, this is just how the football scheduling works out. There is a very clear and direct comparison in terms of form um, from the end of December to now, because Arsenal have recently played West Ham and Liverpool. And at the end of December... They played Liverpool and drew 1-1. They lost 2-0 to West Ham at home. They lost to Fulham 2-1 away from home. And then they lost to Liverpool 2-0 in the FA Cup. And that, that last game being on the 7th of January. So now, just one month later, they've put Liverpool to the sword. They've put West Ham to the sword. The only bad news, if any of this is to be taken as a uh, an Uno reverse card of 2024, is that they're currently about to take on Burnley on the weekend. And last time they beat them three one, so presumably that means they're going to lose four <laughs> nil. That would be the ultimate Arsenal, wouldn't it? To like have this great run of form, get people asking questions about whether they're now title challengers again, and then stack it two nil to Burnley. <laughs> um, it's it's I, almost I'm, it's almost too perfect. Speaking of Burnley, though, I, I do like that Arsenal have kind of reinvented themselves as what I'll sort of tentatively call the rich man's Burnley. They. Uh, absolutely flying in terms of set pieces like their corners and their free kicks Gabriel and Saliba obviously both scored in this game but they absolutely love getting on a set piece and 
I think the stat that came up in this game is they've scored 11 goals from set pieces, like excluding penalties, 11 goals from set pieces this season, and the next best team has scored seven or eight, which as a as a proportion really shows how much they're sort of putting effort into on the training ground, free kicks and corners. And I think maybe that's something that you have to learn when you're not as good as score- at scoring from open play. <laughs> if you have those abilities yeah, to mean- <laughs> turn, you know, dead ball situations in- into advantages, it is quite hard to beat you. That's true. I mean, I think um, I was looking at some raw statistics um, the other day, and I think Gabriel Jesus is in the top five worst uh, strikers in the league for goal conversions. Um, you know, like shots to shots to goals ratio um, of, I believe, around 9%, um, which for anyone listening who does not like to delve into the statistics, is pretty poor. Um, good strikers are in the 30% range. Um, and yeah, you you just if you're a team like Arsenal and you want to play someone like Gabriel Jesus, who has a lot of upsides, even if one of them isn't scoring goals, you need to find your goals from somewhere else. And they seem to have done a, a pretty apt job of creating a system which allows their wingers and their midfielders to chip in with goals fairly regularly. And also, they've really developed their um, set piece behavior, the set piece plays, and it's showing. You mentioned there that Gabriel Jesus has sort of one of the worst conversion rates and they need other players to step up. To, I think to it's the fifth worst but in the league. I think, as far as I can remember. What What about the other, well, one of the other Gabriels? I have Gabriel Magalish, who, this is, this is a stat I read. He, since he arrived at Arsenal, has scored the most goals from set pieces, excluding penalties, of any player in the Premier League. He's scored 14 set piece goals, which is one more than James Ward-Prowse. <laughs> Now, we talk about JWP as a generational free kick taker. Should we be talking about Gabriel Magalish as a generational corner header winner? Maybe, maybe. Or should we be talking about um, Arsenal's free kick takers as generational um, deliverers of the ball? (laughs) I... I, um... This was a few months ago now, but I was listening to uh, the radio or the podcast or the podcast or something, and it had this Spurs fan on, and Arsenal had won a game where Bakayo Saka had sort of crossed the ball to Kai Havertz and he'd headed it in. I can't remember what the, what the game was. And he was sort of suggesting that Arsenal's away kit, you know, the neon yellow one they've got this season, was sort of yeah. cheating because it, it is so high-vis that it allows people to pinpoint targets much more easily. And I listened to that, and at first I was like, Lamal, like conspiracy. And then I was like... Actually, I'm going to choose to believe this. Because, <laughs> again, in this game, they're wearing the high-vis yellow. And it, it kind of tracks through. If you only have to flick up quickly and you can see very clearly where your teams are, because they are in essentially high-vis jackets, I'm willing to believe that that gives you a competitive advantage. I love that. So, so you're just like, ha, what's silly? Wait a minute. Does that fit my head cannon? Yeah, 100%. Uh, my initial thing was like, ha, ha. And I was like, no, I choose to agree. Well, there you go. Um, out of interest, would you like to guess which team the top two worst conversion rate strikers this season hail from? It's both. It's it's one team. Uh, you know, I'm going to say Everton. It's Everton. It is yeah, Beto and Dominic Calvert Lewin. But those are the two names that immediately jumped into my head. Like that, we, we sort of didn't 
brush we brushed over it in this sort of city conversation. It's so sad watching Dominic Calvert Lewin now. I used to absolutely love watching that guy play. And I think if, I you, agree. if you roll back the years, there's even a period where we were sort of questioning whether he should be given a couple of chances up front for England, you know, and sort of train him ahead of tournaments instead of Harry Kane. And good God, if you heard someone saying yeah. that now, you'd section them. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking about, um, I think it was ahead of the Italy game and how um, Dominic they should use Dominic Cavalluan in that game instead of Harry Kane because he would fit the tactical profile that they would need more. And I also remember, uh, I'm pretty sure one of Sean Dyche's first games as the Everton manager was to come full circle against Arsenal. And I'm pretty sure... Everton managed to hold Arsenal to a 1-1 draw and Dominic Calvert-Lewin had a fantastic game. Um, I don't remember if he scored or not, but I remember him just being... That was a a 1-0 win for Everton. James Tarkovsky in the corner. Yeah. uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin though, and the job that he did in being a physical presence up top and he he just dominated Arsenal's two centre-backs throughout that game. And I remember thinking to myself... Sean Dyche is going to love Dominic Calvert-Lewin and what he brings to the team. And for whatever reason, it's never quite manifested. Yeah, yeah, it it really hasn't. And it's such a shame to see because it's someone that I personally have always really enjoyed. And I was always sort of like, I I wonder like at what point is he going to maybe move to a traditional big club and sort of realise his full potential? Probably never now. Well, almost certainly never now. There you go. Um, for posterity, for in, for interest, would you like to guess the final two players that make up the top five worst conversion strikers in the league? Okay, so we've got Beto and DCL top two. Darwin yep. Nunez got to be in there. Um, Darwin Nunez right. is fourth. Okay, he's definitely got to be in there. And then, uh, so Jesus is fifth, Darwin Nunez is fourth. Beto and DCL at first. Oh, I've got them all so I've got the well, those four so far. Three of the four. Um, I'm gonna say the worst is Raheem Sterling. It's not Raheem Sterling. I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a clue. It's a team that have really been missing their main striker so far this season. Is it, is it a Spurs? Spurs haven't really been missing him. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. Tell me, tell me who it is. It's Brentford's Wisser. Johan Wisser. There you go. I, I probably wouldn't there have guessed you, that if you given me ten more minutes. There you go. I was trying to. I thought. I thought that was quite a good clue. You know, they've not had Ivan Tony. They've had to make do. They've kind of struggled to score goals. Anyway. It was, but Ivan Tony has uh, he's picked up where he left off. He's immediately started scoring goals for fun. And he actually has one league goal less than Gabriel Jesus this season, which is a horrendous stat for, well, for Gabriel Jesus. Great stat for Ivan Tony. <laughs> that, I mean, I think that, yeah, that, that probably tells you everything you need to know without reaching for statistics around conversion rates. Um, either way, I think uh, we could definitely agree that... Uh, Ivan Tony works very well in Brentford system, and also that uh, Gabriel Jesus works very well in Arsenal system. Mm, indeed, indeed, they do. Um, maybe let's finish off by talking about uh, 
Which game have we got here? Not Wolves, Brentford. Uh, Manchester United versus Aston Villa. Scott McTominay scoring yet another winner and uh, getting Eric Ten Hag out of jail. <laughs> out of jail? <laughs> out of jail. Well, yeah, like, like, like f- figurative jail. Let, let's talk about the jail managers next. I want to talk about the, yeah, Man United's last minute win to, to sort of save Ten Hag's blushes and uh, the one from last night where Pochettino was getting sacked until he wasn't over the course of that match, I believe. Um, <laughs> Scott McTominay, once again, is this at this point now? I saw a stat that said that Scott McTominay has won 12 points from his, like, his goals have been worth. 12 points because they've almost all been winning goals which is the most of any player the next most is seven which is young son isn't that a crazy stat that is crazy but also well it's surprising in that it exists it's not surprising in the sense that i think it, it is reflected in the eye test you know i feel like he has saved manu's bacon quite a few times and i think the first time it happened this season we talked about how he seems to do it quite a lot for Scotland and that was starting to maybe translate into, um, I guess, having a, a bigger role at Manchester United and it seems to be the case. Um, he really seems to be um, picking up on, yeah, a, a real a real strong ability to win games for his team um, or just, yeah, win points. Um, I personally, he's starting to... He's starting to rub off on me. I, I don't mind Scott McTominay. I know he's endured a lot of criticism in the past, but he's stuck around. And do you think he's starting to prove his value beyond just the, the 12 points? Do you think that he is now good enough that Manchester United should not replace him with someone better? Nah, I, I think he's really good at what he does, which is sort of, you know, the, those <laughs> those arriving late in the boxes and using chaos. And maybe there's an argument to have him there in the squad. But I think this is sort of like, well, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's, it's basically like <laughs> pe- taping over a massive crack with duct tape or a massive leap with duct tape. And it stops it for the time being. You're not then supposed to go, okay, well, just th- this is the good fix. You see, you're supposed to use that time to go like, okay, let's find a proper solution while this is somehow, God knows how, working in the short term. Okay, so I, I hear that. I hear that and and I broadly agree with you. However, if we are talking about just the value that one player brings to a team. I think that Scott McTominay's goals from kind of holding midfield are out of the ordinary enough to suggest that if you were just to replace him with another holding midfielder, you would get far from the same result. Given that he has contributed 12 points with his goals, not to mention all of the the other work that he does in that team, like defending and things like that. Are you really going to tell me that you don't think that he has a, a really strong amount of value to this Man U team? Like, how many other team players in your head are worth more points than him for Man U or for any other team? Well, I mean, st- statistically, no one is worth more points than than him in terms of his goals. Uh, obviously, there's loads of other ways you can you can win points, but just in terms of the goals he scores. But I think a lot of United fans and a lot of people in general would say, like, yeah, okay, he's won those games and he's won those points. But a lot of the times, 
they won't. And a lot of the times when he does, they wouldn't be in that situation in the first place if they had someone more competent who could control games. But hey, maybe maybe McMayonnaise is the answer. I'm I'm willing to be to be swayed. But they had Casemiro and they still struggled. Yeah, yeah, they have now. I think when he first... I mean, this is a different conversation entirely. When he first came in, he was great. And, and now they're just reaping the rewards of signing someone who's a bit older. But but when Casemiro first came in and was great, man, you still struggled to win games. They still struggled to keep clean sheets. Casemiro was not like the, the fix that you are suggesting replacing Scott McTominay with a better player would be. Yeah, I understand that. And look, maybe McTominay is the way. I just... I, I think he is a a bit of an anomalous solution at the moment in which you can't expect him to continue doing this for the rest of the season. Sometimes players just have really good runs of form. And this isn't even necessarily a good run of form. It's just the ball keeps being in an area and he knows where to find it. Which, if he was playing as a striker, you'd say, fantastic. But he's not. Yeah. Well, interesting. I feel like um, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that like lightning strikes in the same place more than once many times in football because narratives are born. And when you think of someone like Harry Kane and his performances at the start of every season, his inability to score in August, you can't tell me that that didn't have an impact on his mindset in August every time he he laced up his boots. And that will have impacted his ability to score goals in August. And I think that the more Scott McTominay continues to believe that he can grab one at the end, the more he will continue to have that extra 10% of, of um, like adrenaline and motivation and, and push himself that little bit further to try and get into the box or get his head on the end of things. And we could well be seeing the, the start of something. I think a lot of the time, um, great players are born from a, a consistent run of good form turning into class, consistent class. It could well be the case. Well, let's wait and see. I don't want to belabor uh, the point on Scott McTominay for too much longer. Uh, we've only got a little bit that's of time fair. left, and I want to get on to two more teams. Before we get on to the other sort of managerial uh, concern on both sides, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, Aston Villa, who lost again here. Aside from their win over Sheffield United uh, at the start of this month, which, which you know I would say is as close to a given as you can get in this league. Sorry, Sheffield United. They haven't actually won a game this year. Now, this is something that some Arsenal fans will sort of, they're, they're sort of already crowing a little bit about. But Unai Emery seems to have this a bit of a drop-off in him when it when it comes time to turn around. Obviously, he finished last season quite strong, but he came in halfway through. Are Aston Villa, well, Aston Villa absolutely are not worried because even if they, even if they finish like sixth or seventh or eighth, they're still probably going to be quite happy. But um, top four has slipped out of their fingers for now at least with Tottenham leapfrogging them. Are they going to be worried about it flipping out of their fingers altogether with the recent run of form? I think it's one of those classic things where logic tells you no because he has taken this team and done amazing things with them already and he's clearly continuing to improve the players under his direction and the squad as a whole and the profile of Aston Villa in the Prem. That's that's what logic says. But that's rarely how clubs behave. A lot of the time you think to yourself, well, this guy's given loads to the club and, and look at where they are now compared to where they were. But football is ruthless. You know, any any club will willingly, at the drop of a hat almost, turn around and fire the manager that got them promoted um, or turn around and fire 
the manager that won them the trophy last season. Um, I think that it's not a problem really at all yet. But if the same thing happens next year, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, and well, and well, also, let's... you know, if if they continue to drop off and end up maybe like seventh or eighth in the table, I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, chairmen's and 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 boards at teams just remember where they like their highest position in the league, and that almost then becomes the norm. It's like, oh, but we were fourth once. Why aren't we still fourth? We're getting worse. We've dropped off. We need to change things. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair point. Well, speaking of uh, teams that maybe have higher expectations than the currently the reality, let's talk about Crystal Palace Chelsea. And which team was I talking about there? You decide. Um, <laughs> Crystal Palace uh, looking like they were going to send Mauricio Pochettino uh, packing uh, in that first half. And Chelsea really not playing themselves too well there uh, until they had a late, late comeback. Cole Palmer once again getting Chelsea out of jail. I think him and Malagusto, who also had a, a great game running up and down, were sort of the two bright lights there. But... And, and I guess Conor Gallagher who scored the two goals as well. But my word, another pretty bad performance from Chelsea saved at the death. And on Palace's side, not being able to capitalise on a pretty bad performance from Chelsea constitutes a bad performance in and of itself for them. Uh, yeah, I think um, they... Well, they set up with quite a clear directive, which was to try and hit Chelsea on the counter. And for the most part, it worked quite well. Jefferson Lerma's goal was a good example of, you know, they, they robbed Chelsea high up the pitch um, and they did that a couple of times. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was that they let Chelsea play a little bit more or Chelsea unlocked their uh, <laughs> their hero um, packed impact cards and, and managed to get um, some of their world-class players actually playing some good football. Um, I, I think they will obviously be dis- disappointed in the sense that I think you've got to be disappointed anytime you're up and then lose 3-1. Um, they, they're not yet in on a run of form that I would deem concerning enough that Roy Hodgson has to go above all else. I still maintain, I think we've both agreed that Hodgson should go, but the problem is that who are Crystal Palace going to pick up between now and the end of the season that will guarantee that they will stay up? Um, they currently sit at 15th. They're three points ahead of 16th place. It's close. Um, I, I don't know where this Palace side should go. I don't really know what they should do. I don't actually know if they should get rid of Roy Hodgson at the end of the season. I'm interested to hear what you think about that. I mean, they don't look like they're, they're you know, some of their best players are injured, as Elise and Gehi, uh, probably their three best players at the moment, really. And they don't play particularly exciting football and they're going nowhere fast. They are getting, sh- you know, pretty shagged most games. <laughs> if you think about some of the results they've had recently, like against Brighton and Arsenal. Should Roy go or should he stay to the end of the season? I mean, he's probably not going to take them down but you sort of run the risk because sometimes just having a new manager or even an assistant manager in can have that psychological effect that sort of dead cat bounce so if I am you know Mr. Crystal and Mr. Palace I'm thinking you know let's hedge our bets uh you know we've got a good relationship with Roy we can say you know very gently look Roy we need to someone to move on Roy will probably (laughs) agree himself it's not going the way I'd like it to go um and and then safely stay up because I think they probably will stay up but you know, it's leaving a lot to chance with still a fair bit of the season left to play. They are one of the worst form teams in the league right now. Yeah, that's true. And they have an absolutely huge month coming up. 
Um, before between now and the end of March, they play Burnley, Luton, and Nottingham Forest, and then they play Bournemouth on the second of April. So those are all crucial games for them if they are to cement their position in the kind of the the right side of the of the relegation line. Uh, Everton as well. You you know you didn't mention Everton, Burnley. Uh, oh, did I not? And Luton. I've- Three, yeah. three of their next four games are teams that are below them. So if they don't, you know, win or at least draw two or two out of three of those, it might be danger time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, personally, I would be reticent to remove Roy Hodgson. I think that would be too much of a gamble. But then again, there's so much at stake that I could also see why they would feel the need to. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, look, we have covered a lot of the footballing uh, world, both uh, uh, in terms of uh, theory, but also geographically this episode. So probably a good place to wrap up for this week, Rupert. Cam, I think you're right. Thank you to everyone at home for listening, and we'll catch you next time. That's it for now. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.